So we're a community that proclaims gospel, good news. And I have good news for you today. Uh, we have an outside preacher, which is, which is, which is exciting um, to raise the bar every once in a while. Uh, and this is a speaker who's going to be uh, um, addressing a couple of different things. Um, something that we can all relate to that we need good news is what it means to, when we're looking at an uncertain future, a future that's different from what we've known before, which we can all relate to. And this is going to be an adventure and a journey that all of us are going to be going on, uh, as I mentioned last Sunday in the sermon, here at Covenant. Uh, in our new vision statement of encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play, we are going to be entering into a two-year learning cohort with Fuller Theological Seminary. This is going to be talking about what does it mean to be the church in the 21st century, a missional church, the Be God Sent people, where we live, work, and play. In essence, kind of rejecting this idea of there's my private faith and then there's the public world in which I live and I just sort of wear two different hats when I'm there. But how we do that is going to be a challenge. It's going to be something we have to learn and discover. And so we're going to be doing this learning cohort, participating in this for uh, the next two years. And every single one of you is going to have an opportunity to learn and grow as a part of this process. This isn't going to be something for just like the elders or just for a few people in the church or the people who know the secret handshake. This is going to be something that every single student, child, adult is going to have an opportunity to engage. And we're really excited about it. So leading this initiative uh, at Fuller is Todd Bolsinger. Todd is a pastor he uh, has a Ph.D. from Fuller, and he's just gone back after working at San Clemente Presbyterian Church, where um, he writes in his book about an office overlooking the Pacific Ocean, um, which sounds pretty awesome. But uh, he left there after almost 20 years as a senior pastor to uh, take a position of the vice president of vocation and formation at Fuller. It's his area that's going to be giving a lot of leadership to this new learning cohort that we're going to be a part of. And Todd is here to met with our elders and staff yesterday for a full day um, and is preaching today here. And we are really excited to, uh, to have you with us and to be a part of this new learning community. It's a part of Fuller. So will you join me in welcoming Todd Bolsinger? Well, thank you very much. I'm, um, I am thrilled to be here. I had a great time with your leaders yesterday, and I'm loving spending time with your pastoral staff. You are a very, very, very blessed congregation. I'm sure you know that as much as I do. And so um, it's great just to actually have a few minutes to share some stuff with you. I'm going to be talking out of the book of Isaiah today. I Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It's the season of time in, in the Israel's history when they'd gone into the exile. So this is the, the context for it. After King David had become powerful, and after King Solomon had become rich, and Israel then had become known for being both rich and powerful, and it was kind of a somebody in the day, things began to fall apart. Slowly, after over a long period of time, finally, they lose their kingdom. They lose their influence. They lose their power. They are now captives in Babylon. And it's in this moment of captivity that Isaiah speaks to the people of God. And I'm going to, from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 15 to 19. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse and army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. 
Do not remember the former things, or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Let me pray for us. Oh God, this morning we ask that you would open our hearts to your word, that you would open your word to our hearts, that we would hear your word and it would transform us and change us so that we might have eyes to see what you are doing in our lives, in our world, in our city, in our communities, in this church, in this place. May we have eyes to see what you are doing and to follow you, we pray. Amen. August 12, 1805, Meriwether Lewis took a cold drink from a small stream. He climbed up to the top of what is now the Lemhi Pass on the border of Montana and Idaho. He looked over this pass and discovered that everything he believed about the world was wrong. That the maps that he had been following for 300, that had been written over 300 years were wrong. That everything that had made Thomas Jefferson send him and William Clark and the Corps of Discovery on this journey was wrong. That everything they assumed about the world was wrong. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark and the Corps of Discovery had been sent by Thomas Jefferson from St. Louis to travel up the Mississippi River across the Missouri River with the intention of finding a water route that would connect St. Louis and the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. A water route that would be critical for their economic survival. Uh, all goods and all things would be transported on the water. It, owning the water route and claiming the water route would be like owning the internet today. Thomas Jefferson had bought the Louisiana Purchase so that they could get rights to claim this water route. It was so critical to financial success that Spain had sent two war parties to try to intercept Lewis and Clark and kill them so they could claim the water route. It was that critical. It was, and everybody knew it was there. It had been drawn on maps for over 300 years. Everybody assumed there's a water route. We just have to find it. And all we need to do is find where it connects together. And that's what Meriwether Lewis believed when he walked up to the edge of what is the Lemhi Past. He believed that he would then send back for the rest of the Corps of Discovery. They would bring their canoes. They would carry them over a half a day. And then they would put them into the river. And after 18 months of paddling upstream, they would now get to go downstream. They could run the rapids all the way down. They could float to the Pacific Ocean. They could get there. They could take a selfie. They could send it back to Thomas Jefferson. They could exult as being the explorers that they always wanted to be. But at that moment, when he walked up to the top of the Lemhi Pass, what he discovered was the Rocky Mountains. Jagged 14,000-foot peaks, 300 miles of mountains that were bigger than anything that anybody from that part of North America had ever seen before. 
they had been told by the Mandan tribe that there would be mountains that they would have to, to have to go, that they'd have to carry their canoes over some mountains. But what they were thinking in their mind were the mountains they knew from the east. They were thinking Shenandoah Mountains, Appalachian Mountains. Anybody been to Shenandoah National Park? It's lovely. It's really beautiful. Rolling hills, great, beautiful sunsets. It's really, really nice. I'm from California. We'd have turned that into condos a long time ago. Because those aren't mountains. Mountains like the Rocky Mountains are daunting and overwhelming. One of Lewis and Clark's men wrote in the journal, they were the most horrible things we'd ever beheld. At that moment, Meriwether Lewis had a choice to make. He absolutely could have, I believe, stopped and said, okay, we made a great discovery. Here's the discovery. No water route. <laughs> Go back and tell Jefferson, we're water guys. What you need to do is send some mountain guys. Send some folks who like to climb mountains. That's not us. We got, we got canoes. Somebody told me that Denver, uh, my friends in Denver Seminary, like to, uh, Denver, uh, Colorado, like to say all the time that Denver was founded by a group of people who had braved all the way across the Great Plains, gone through all those harsh winters, gone through all those things, and looked up and said, yeah, right here, far enough. This is awesome. We'll stay here. Good view. Good, good real estate. We'll take this right here. What was it about Meriwether Lewis in that moment that made him say, we'll proceed on? I believe that's the moment the church is in today, that the church is in exactly the same spot, particularly here in the West. The church is in a place where we are having to confront the reality that the world in front of us is nothing like the world behind us, that everything in front of us is different, and that we are not prepared, at least if we continue to look back to the world behind us. A few years ago, I spent some time with a bunch of Methodists from Maine. Um, I was there speaking on Christian community, kingdom of God, and spiritual formation, those topics. I'd written a book on it. I did three talks, the kingdom of God, spiritual formation, Christian community. They were all Christian educators, people who teach Sunday school. They were all interested in talking about Christian community, the kingdom of God, spiritual formation. After those three talks, um, I gathered for a question-answer time, about 60 people. And we were all gathered together, and I asked them, so what questions do you have about my talks, you know, on the kingdom of God, spiritual formation, Christian community? And they raised their hands, and I gathered up all the questions, and 59 of the 60 of them basically all said the same thing. What they said was, um, how do we keep our church from dying? I didn't come to talk about church growth or church renewal or revival. I'd come to talk about Christian community, kingdom of God, spiritual formation. But what they wanted to talk about was the church is dying. The next generations aren't coming. We got sanctuaries that are getting empty. That there are more people who care more about Starbucks, reading the Sunday Times, doing soccer, than they care about being in a sanctuary. And we don't even know what to do. One of my friends has spent his whole ministry in Alabama. Talk about different. Go from the northeast down to the belt buckle of the Bible belt, right? And, he's, and I asked him, I said, after your whole life of doing ministry in Alabama, what do you notice? What's changed about the church? And he put it this way. He said, it's really simple. Forty years ago in Alabama, when I started my ministry, we never worried about church growth or church membership or church attendance or any of that stuff. We didn't have to. Because 40 years ago in Alabama, if a man, man, Missed church on Sunday, his boss asked him about it at work on Monday. And if your 
work employment is dependent on your church attendance, church attendance tends to go up. You see, the world that was behind us, this world that most of us were prepared for, this world that we are trained in is a world which we call Christendom. It's the world where Christianity had a home court advantage. It's where the culture supported Christianity. It doesn't mean that everybody's a Christian, but it just meant that the Christian values that those of us who are Christians would want to live out are shared by most people. It's the world that um, some of us can remember, and particularly our parents and grandparents can remember really well. This world where the, um, that every town was made with the same plan, that in the square of every small town, the town square, there would be a courthouse and a library and the first church of whoever got there first. So they were first Presbyterian or first Methodist or first Lutheran, and all the other first churches would be on 2nd Street because everybody knew that the center of society was law, education, and religion and that religion was mostly Christianity. And today we live in a totally different world. I have in my office in Pasadena at Fuller Seminary a copy of the LA Times from December 1963, four months before I was born. Somebody kept it because the front page is about the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission. So it's a historical keepsake. They passed it on to me because the back page of the front section of the LA Times had an article on the then 9,000 member Hollywood Presbyterian Church where I served for 10 years when it had about 3,800 members. Today it's down to 1,000 members. But the reason why I kept it is that in the corner of the LA Times, in the front section, there is a little box from 1963 in that newspaper, a little box where the LA Times gave you your daily Bible readings. Can you imagine a day where the newspaper, the LA Times, helps you have your quiet time? That's the Christendom world of a generation ago. That's the world that most all of our leaders were trained for. That's the world that Fuller Seminary trained most of its pastors for. That's the world that we were in. And the world behind us is nothing like the world in front of us. So what do we, who are sitting in the middle of this incredible change of culture, in this moment, think? What do we hear from God saying to us at this moment, especially those of us who sometimes long for those glory days? What is the word for us today? Here's what the prophet says. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Dear friends, clinging to the past keeps us from seeing the new thing that God is doing. Longing for the past, wanting to go back to the past, wanting to recover power or influence from the past keeps us from seeing the new thing that God is doing. This message is all the way through the scriptures. Notice in Isaiah who says not to remember the former things. In verse 16, we read, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. What story is this? What's the story where the horse and rider end up in the middle of the Red Sea and get conquered by a God who closes up the sea? This is the story of the Exodus. 
This is the story when God's people are rescued from Pharaoh who said he was a god and who become the people of God. This is the greatest story of the Old Testament. It's the biggest dang deal before the resurrection. And the God who accomplished the exodus says to his people who are in exile, do not remember the former things. Don't long for the glory days. Jesus faced the, same, faced the same thing with his disciples. He's raised from the dead. They finally see him. They're there in front of him in Acts chapter 1. They look at him and they, and they say, Jesus, is this the time? Is this when we're going to do it? I mean, I know back in the garden you told Peter to put his sword away, but we know you got all this power. You were just raised from the dead. Is this the time when we're going to like just kick some Roman rear end? Is this it when we're going to start the, resurre- the resurrection? We're going to start the revolution? We're gonna, is this the time when we're going to take the power and give it back to the kingdom of David? Is this the time? And he says, Wait. Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 3. He lays out his resume. He's got, the, he's got the absolute best resume that anybody trying to get into an Ivy League college would ever want. He says, I've been through the best schools. I've had the best tutors. I have the best character. I've done the best extracurriculars. I've done absolutely everything you could possibly want. I am, this is the greatest thing you have. Here's my resume. It's as good as you can get. And then he says, but I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings. I want to become like him. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the heavenly calling of God in Christ. And all of us who are mature think this way, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. My friends, clinging to the past keeps us from seeing the new thing God is doing. Lewis and Clark were water guys. They'd built their own boats, they'd made their own canoes, and now there they had to let them go. They had to drop them. They had to go into uncharted territory where the maps were all wrong, and they had to find their way to continue on in their message, and all they had in front of them and all they had with them was the voice of one person, who is not lost, a Native American nursing teenage mother who is traveling with her baby, with, Sok- with Sacagawea with them. They found horses, they made their way through the mountains and found themselves at the Pacific Ocean. Dear friends, they were called the core of discovery because they were supposed to discover the water route but what they actually discovered was a whole new way of being, a whole new way of living, a brand new way of being a new nation. Do you not see it? The Spirit asks, if we continually look back to the Exodus while we're in exile, we won't. If we continually look back to the glory days, longing for something of the past, when the future is all in front of us, we'll miss it. But if we can embrace this experience, even this experience of feeling like we're in exile, that we're no longer uh, the, the most popular or most powerful or most privileged people, if we can instead embrace that this is exactly where God has us, in uncharted territory to move forward, if we can embrace this season as the season of our lives, as an adventure that God's been given to us, then maybe we can develop eyes to see that God is taking us into uncharted territory to change us. 
Israel's exile is what taught them that the God of Israel is the God of the whole world, that God loves the whole world, and that God's love for the whole world included even their captors. It's in exile that we find the language that that starts the mission of the church. It's in their exile that Israel began to to take on the understanding of who God is and that God was greater and bigger than just one nation and one people. Let me tell you my favorite Lewis and Clark story of the whole thing. They finally make it to the Pacific Ocean. They're there on the edge. They've made it. They've got to spend the winter there, and because they're a military outfit and because they're representing the United States of America, they're going to establish the very first fort in the West, the very first American territory. This is a military operation. They're the captains of the Corps. They have complete authority. They can do whatever they want. They can establish it wherever they want to do, and with military power and kind of dictatorial power, they can just declare it so. But what they do at that moment when they're establishing the very first American fort is they do something almost unheard of. They do something incredibly American. They have a vote. They let every single person in the Corps of Discovery vote on where the fort will be. Every one of them gets a vote. Every one of them, including Sacagawea, a Native American woman, and York, an African-American slave. Dear friends, the first time a woman, a teenager, a Native American, and an African-American ever voted in an American election was in 1805 in the Corps of Discovery, way off the map. I believe that God is taking the church into uncharted territory so that we can lead the world in what the future is supposed to look like, a place of justice and love and grace that we are supposed to, in an uncertain world where people are struggling with power, we're supposed to demonstrate what it's supposed to look like and that God is taking the church into uncharted territory for the rest of the culture that is fearful and afraid. God is taking us into uncharted territory to change us but if we cling to the past, we will never be prepared for the future. Let me finish with one last word. It is God who goes before us to prepare us. God goes before us to prepare us. The whole section of Isaiah starts with these words. Comfort. O comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. A voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. These words, words that would be used by John the Baptist to announce the coming of Jesus the Messiah, were the words that God first had spoken in the wilderness. Dear friends, you're a church that's on the precipice where the future is in front of you. The past is nothing like the future. The future is nothing like the past. It is going to require you to move forward and trust God that he is there in front of you and will be transforming you for your journey. But let me close with this story. I went back to Fuller Seminary a few years ago to visit 
And when I found her, I ran into an old classmate of mine. We were both people who had been in school together, and so we immediately caught up. And he asked me, he said, Todd, what are you doing these days? And I told him, I'm pastoring an amazing congregation. I love these folks. They want to reach people for Jesus in our neighborhood. We're trying to do everything we can to reach our neighbors and to reach our friends. I love being there. I love being their pastor. It's filled with all kinds of difficult things. We fail a lot, but it's really amazing. And he looked at me and smiled. You know, I've always been a kind of a take-the-hill guy. Give me a challenge. I want to charge it. That's always been what I've been. And I looked at him, and I thought, he's probably a take-the-hill guy, too. I can't wait to hear what he's doing. Because he had been a CEO of a company. He'd been an entrepreneur. He came to seminary with his whole background. And all of a sudden, he looked at me, and he smiled, and he goes, you know, I'm pastoring in a convalescent home. I started a church for people who are near the end of their lives, your grandmas and grandpas. <laughs> I care for them. I hold their hands. They hold mine. I hug them and kiss them. They hug me and kiss me. We sing hymns together. We pray together. I usher them into the hands of Jesus. It's amazing. And we paused and we looked at each other, and I think both of us wondered whether the other one was actually doing it right. <laughs> right? What are we supposed to be? I mean, I'm a take-the-hill guy. He's a love-grandma guy, right? <laughs> I, I, I want to charge the hill and move into the future. He wants to care for the saints and love them and take care of them. What are we supposed to do in a day like this? Are we supposed to take the hill or take care of grandma? What do we do? Let me tell you, friends, we're in uncharted territory. We're, at the, we're in a place where the gospel needs to go forward no matter what. So I want you to know that if you've got to make a decision, Take the hill and take grandma with you. We're the church. We're not just a core of discovery of 28 single men who've got nothing to lose. We're the church. We're a multi-generational culture and community that's meant to be God's mission and presence in the world. We're the church. Don't cling to the past. Yourself be transformed. God is before you. Take the hill. And all of us, including Grandma, get to go. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we ask you to give us what we need to be able to serve you well. We ask you to give us the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit to enable us to become more and more the people you want us to be to help us to reach our friends and neighbors, to trust you in every decision we make, to not seek the power and privilege and prestige of the past, but instead your presence in our midst, so that whatever we face and wherever we are, we might find that we are following you even when the road is unclear, even when the world before us has changed so dramatically. It's in the name of Christ whom we follow we pray. Amen.